more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis, and it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find... Or (laughs) you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live. And today we are lucky to be joined by Joseph Valencia from the College of Engineering, where he's focusing on the computer science side of things. Joseph, welcome to the booth. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy now, Sunday. <laughs> happy Sunday. Happy very Rainy wet Sunday. Yeah, wet, soggy Sunday. <laughs> Clearly, it, it's not been a restorative weekend for me. I bungled that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, something we're not going to bungle is the rest of this interview. And Joseph, we have a difficult interview because you have this unique space where you do biology, computer science with a heavy dose of machine learning. But before we get into your research, let's go back to our ninth or 10th grade science selves and remind us how our bodies work. So I know that proteins make enzymes and enzymes, they basically do everything in the body from muscle repair to blinking and finding and destroying those pesky little COVID-19 viruses. (laughs) But help us understand a little bit more about what makes these proteins. Sure. So we probably want to start with DNA, which is sort of the information storage component of the cell. Um, and then on top of that, you have RNA, which is really the focus of, of my research. But RNA is kind of the, uh, the intermediate part of this process. I would liken it to the DNA is sort of like a library, bookshelves. And then mm. maybe an RNA transcript is an individual book. And contained in that book is the instructions for doing something in the cell. And the RNA is made up, just like you said, it's a really long instruction book. Um, But there's something in the cell that has to read and translate that instruction book to make these enzymes and proteins that our bodies rely on. So tell us more about the ribosome. Right. So the ribosome, as you say, is this complex uh, molecular machine. Uh, there's, There's many of them in each cell. And their job is to kind of do the interpretation of those books. And from my earlier analogy, you take the... RNA transcript, uh, the ribosome will attach to it and uh, interpret it uh, and, and produce the protein that ends up, the protein folds into a specific three-dimensional configuration um, and you know the shape of that protein affects its function in the end. So the ribosome is really what's responsible for 
translation. That's the, that's the name of this process, translation. And this process is not specific to humans, which is why we learned it at 10th mm-hmm. grade biology, because it's part of basic biology. So what kinds of animals and organisms do have this kind of machinery? More or less all of them. So yeah, this is one of those, um, biology is, is a field that's full of exceptions. There's exceptions to a lot of rules, but this, as far as it goes in biology, this is one of the most universal things. Uh, so everything from bacteria to, to, you know, plants to us. So this is why the data set you work with that we'll discuss more in depth, it has all kinds of different species within it. It's not just human species, because again, this basic translation process uh, is really similar across many, many species. So really fascinating stuff. Now, there's also, in this translation step, the ribosome is making decisions, right? It's its own thing. Yeah. So you can think of it as kind of this intelligence system that's happening just at a very tiny scale. Uh, the ribosome has to make decisions about which transcripts, so the, the vision that I told you about of um, a, you know, a transcript being a book that becomes uh, an active protein in the cell is, is not all the story. So ima- imagine that there were some um, transcripts that they don't turn into proteins. They, they are kind of important as the books themselves, and it's an analogy, not to stretch it too far, but um, maybe like the bibliography, you know? It's yeah. Like, oh, that's helpful to know if you need to know it. <laughs> Definitely. So that that second class uh, we would call non-coding RNAs. So coding refers to the fact that they code for a protein that they become something that they after. Become something mm-hmm. afterwards. So uh, you know, we're all in kind of the messenger RNA era right now because um, with COVID nineteen. This has been one of the innovations that's come out of this time is so people, maybe you've heard mRNA in the news. Um, and so that really is the, the classic picture that we have of RNAs. But there's also these non-coding RNAs. And my work is um, kind of in that realm of distinguishing between those two. Cool. So now that, that all of us are hopefully caught up on our ninth or 10th grade um, <laughs> biology. Um, let's talk a little bit about that other side, right? Because your research is kind of at this interface of, of biology, but you're studying it um, with a computational lens through machine learning. So right. how about you try and give us a simple <laughs> definition of what machine learning is? Sure. Uh, so machine learning is a data-driven approach is the first thing to say, very empirical. Uh, so anytime that you have large amounts of data, um, maybe, maybe you know, you already know some properties about that data, but you would like to learn a model in order to describe how the properties of, of a particular model come about. Machine learning is um, a way you might go about that. So we take large amounts of Data in, in my case, it's data that has, you know, a label. And so they're biological sequences that have labels about them, and it can be arbitrary labels. In my case, it's whether they're protein coding or not. Um, but we take those examples, and there are many ways to do this step. But we we feed it to large mathematical models. And this is where we should probably say that for. Uh, we already kind of know 
what uh, in, in the DNA realm, right? It's a sequence of uh, different amino acids, and we know which RNA sequences make which proteins. Mm-hmm. And we also know, so those are the the inputs to to ribosomes, right? That's right. And we also know the outputs, right? We kind of know what proteins look like as mm-hmm. well. Um, but it, it's that ribosome that's doing that translation step. But it's a really complicated decision making piece of machinery. Yes. Yeah. With a lot of data inputs, and we don't super understand how and why it makes those decisions. So hopefully machine learning can help here. Right. So we know that the transcript is interpreted in these little windows of three nucleotides. So A, C, G, and T, or A, C, G, and U in the case of um, of RNA. Uh, we These are the four nucleotide bases. Uh, and then the way you get from that to an amino acid, which is sort of the alphabet of the protein, is you look at three adjacent nucleotides, and then that pretty much um, deterministically, from the three, the code of, of three nucleotides, you know what amino acid is supposed to be specified. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, we do know what, the, given an input of an RNA, what the output of a protein should look like. Mm-hmm. But the decision making comes in in the fact that these ribosomes have to identify in the first place whether or not a given transcript is going to turn into a protein. So these non-coding ones share features with mRNAs. Um, and, and what exactly is it that it's seeing to determine whether or not it becomes a protein? And the, and the machine learning is, um, if we have these inputs and we have these outputs, show the inputs and the outputs to the machine and then ask it, you know, in a loose sense, I say ask it, but it, it's a <laughs> model, <laughs> it's tell easier me. said than done, uh, but that's, that's the overall goal. Right. It's to, it's to get the model essentially like to figure out what is the model itself relying on that we as humans can't mm-hmm. perceive by just looking at these things necessarily. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Because from, from one sense, the ribosome to us is a bit of a black box. We know what goes in. Right. It's the, it's the RNA sequences. We know what comes out. It's the proteins. But the black box is the decision making. And that's what uh, with machine learning, if you feed it all the inputs and you show it all the outputs, it can kind of begin to back calculate how these decisions are being made. And that's kind of what you're trying to do. Yeah, um, I would say my models are more of a black box in the ribosome. We, we do know <laughs> <laughs> some uh, I th- in the mid 2000s, uh, there was a. Nobel Prize in chemistry given out for describing the three-dimensional structure of the ribosome in detail. So we do know more mechanical things about that. Um, but nonetheless, it, we don't, the structural information has not yet told us how it's making these decisions. And so that's why I think modeling it as a computational process is, is where I come in. Yeah, you said this excellent thing in our pre-interview, um, which it, um, I, I might just read it out because I like it so much. <laughs> you, you said that a lot of there's a lot of complexities to it because the thing that makes machine learning so powerful is that the exact complexities that give it that power also make it hard to mm-hmm. interpret why it's doing mm-hmm. what it's doing. Yeah, I thought that was so great. It's like the thing that makes it great is also the thing that makes it very hard for us to understand what it's doing. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you like that. It, so it, <laughs> It, it speaks to the flexibility as a source of uncertainty kind of in these models. Um, so 
mathematically, we have um, a lot of nonlinearities inside of the math of this thing. Mm-hmm. And this always causes problems for... So nonlinearities enable you to learn a complex model, but humans kind of like linearity in terms of looking at... Um, you know, interpretations of things. So um, as our model gets bigger, it, it maybe has the capacity to re- represent more uh, complex things, but uh, at the same time, it becomes that much harder to make sense of what it's doing. You're too good at what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we should be a little less good at it, but um, we're trying to find the, you know, the, the sweet spot between a model that is so complex, you know, complex enough that we're learning new things um, and then not complex enough that we can't extract that information that we're learning. Mm-hmm. And so we've talked a lot about this model. Tell us tell us a little more specifically about it. It's, it's built, it's performing, mm-hmm. it's good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's built. Um, so specifically, the, the subset of machine learning that we work in is, um, as a lot of modern AI is, is called deep learning. Mm-hmm. So it's built on these sort of stacks of uh, linear algebra mostly. Um, and then, yeah, I, so I've, I've built a translation model. Um, our idea was we should, we want to improve the realism of this problem formation so that the model we learn picks up on the biology to the maximal extent. So in, uh, in, other, in other settings, uh, scientists have come up with a way to use machine learning for human translation of translating human languages. So say German to English. Um, so like in Google Translate, for example. Precisely. So yeah. Google Translate itself uses uh, deep learning for doing translation. Uh, and so what our model is doing is it's, it's modeling the biochemical process of translation using a similar framework. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it also, it, 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 there was, there was not really a repository for you to fall back on to just be like, yep, copy paste, kind of add that chunk into my model. It was a lot of you having to figure this out That's from, right, yeah. from the bottom too, right? Yeah. So they, in, they have frameworks, uh, libraries, uh, PyTorch is this, uh, library framework for building deep learning models in Python. Um, Shout out for all the coders out there yeah, in Python. Yeah, <laughs> everybody listening. Um, so, but kind of the standard models don't really work for our use case. So I very much have to take these components that are kind of close to what I need um, and then get more into the weeds myself of coding them for a modification that will serve my purposes. And this is probably, uh, I guess I should say, if you haven't heard of machine learning or AI or, or deep learning, it is becoming ubiquitous in the sciences. Like, uh, to denigrate myself, I study dirt, and machine learning <laughs> is all over dirt stuff because it's too hard to take samples. <laughs> mm. So instead they try and machine learn and impute what that soil sample could look like because it is too expensive and too time-consuming to take samples everywhere in the U.S., and um, you know, people are, are trying to do that. I'm more skeptical than most because other reasons, not the machine learning part. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I'm reminded of an example that uh, tell me tell me how accurate this is. But recently, uh, Google was 
didn't have enough information to learn how to pick up things. And apparently for robots, picking up mm-hmm. items is really difficult. Yes. So they had a farm of little robot hands <laughs> that just picked something up and dropped them and then picked it up and dropped them. And they just did it over and over mm-hmm. again because in, the model inputs were how is this object oriented on the ground and how can I pick it up? But mm. it, but like the machine learning model literally didn't have enough input data. So they had to make input data, yeah. which means they just made a bunch of robot arms dropping things all the time. Sure. So this isn't my <laughs> my closest area of expertise, but I think what you're referring to is a subfield of machine learning called re- reinforcement learning. Mm. Uh, so that's very common in, in robotics and settings like that is where they basically just for whatever action they observe the model doing, they just reward or punish it with and and very pavlovian the punishment (laughs) or reward is literally just a number i i I came across this meme just today (laughs) that was uh like a (laughs) uh a reinforcement learning model wants one thing and it's disgusting it's just a a reward (laughs) (laughs) any kind of reward a a one or a zero or a six or a three exactly (laughs) so all it's all it's thinking about is how to make this number bigger and that's in the end, that's what that's what gets you some rudimentary, uh, you know, hand picking up in this case. <laughs> um, for anyone who's just tuning in now, uh, we are live in the booth talk, uh, talking to Joseph Valencia, who is uh, a third year Ph.D. student in the School of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. Uh, his research kind of sits in the interface of biology and um, machine learning and um Joseph, one thing that like I, I'm a very like applied person. So I think you mentioned some of the like potential applications, like why like why this will be help, helpful in a sense. Um, and I think you mentioned something about like, you know, these mRNA vaccines, which have been very much in the news for the last two years. Do you want to talk a little about, a little bit about that? So the way that the mRNA vaccines is they, you know, they know what RNA sequence Generally, it has to look like for it to recognize the, in this case, the spike protein of the, of the coronavirus. But then within that, there's some room to, because of the redundancies of, you know, that mapping from nucleotides to codons or, you know, nucleotides to amino acids, there is some room for you to change the sequence um, and still get the expected shape of, of the protein in the end. So what they did in in those therapeutics was they can optimize the sequence to promote gene expression. So gene expression is just kind of like the levels of protein that become available. Um, so not, not necessarily my, my current work, but you can imagine a future version of, of my work that helps to optimize a sequence because, you know, in our, in our model, we're, we're interested in modeling the features that distinguish something that codes for proteins versus doesn't code for proteins. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the next thing you could expand that to is, well, if it codes for proteins, how strongly and efficiently does it code for proteins? Mm -hmm. So, and, and that is something that could be very useful in biomedical settings of how can we dial up or down to the correct uh, availabilities of these of these products. Right. Make it like almost a little less random or just mm-hmm. like chancy. Yeah. Chancy is a good way to put yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, a lot of therapeutics 
do require this kind of lock and key to work together mm-hmm. for um and, and I, I think of I say lock and key because I'm thinking the the exact like ridges and edges and spaces on a key, they don't have to be a hundred percent perfect. Like mm-hmm. you said, there's some wiggle room, but the more perfect you can make at make it, the better therapeutics will be in in the future for, you know, targeting whatever kind of, you know, liver disease X or coronavirus 26 mm-hmm. whatever it comes no from. adrian <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying i'd rather be prepared <laughs> yes my... please joseph help us be prepared <laughs> um and actually being a being prepared uh this might be a nice transition to go back into how you got prepared for grad school because you know you don't just jump into knowing machine learning and algorithms no, and coding and python and pytorch and, and all this stuff and then uh, deciding to pair it with bio like fundamental biology <laughs> <laughs> maybe not the most obvious pairing yeah it wasn't to me yeah so um let's turn the clock back a little bit and take us back to undergraduate mm-hmm. joseph and what you started off wanting to to focus your you know your grad your well your undergraduate degree on yeah, so I before Oregon State, I went to the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma. Shout out to the Hurricane. Um, <laughs> is that your? Is that that yeah, the mascot? Tulsa Hurricanes? Oh, I thought there was oh, actually okay. a hurricane. Oh no! Oh no no no! <laughs> um, what does? I'm sorry, sidebar. Does the ma- Is there a mascot that is like a, a yep, big? He's got, he's got like a. It looks more like a tornado, honestly. Oh, okay. I, think. <laughs> I was gonna say, how do you? Or I guess, I don't know that I've seen a live version. We have this other guy, Captain Kane. There's. It's probably like <laughs> oh, hurricane oil. Yeah. Oh, I didn't get that. I'm glad you got Captain. that, Lisa. I did not. I'll admit that. <laughs> so University of yeah, University Sorry. of Tulsa. Um, I started school as an economics major, actually. Um, you know, so I was I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was generally interested in, in thinking about how the economy worked. Um, and so through that, I realized that I needed to learn more math. Um, because, you know, a lot of higher level theory, especially in empirical ma- uh, economics, needs math. So that was kind of, there was a progression from, you know, I started as just an econ major, added an applied math uh, double major, I think. Um, through that, had to take some CS courses and realized that I really liked those. And CS is computer science? Yeah, sorry, computer science. Um uh, liked the programming intro class type stuff that I took through that and then decided that I was re- really more interested in that. And was the time that you started doing research, was that before or after you kind of started doing the computer science work? I did. I think I had a, at least a year in the CS, uh, the computer science department before I started doing research. I think it was my, my junior year I started doing research. Out of curiosity, was there a, a was was it the content of the class that was especially exciting, or was it a professor who, you know, she might have been especially good at um, at, at getting students excited? Do you remember? Uh, I can't remember. I I do remember that the first coding course was not super fun, but I stuck it out <laughs> to the second one, and that one was a lot more fun. You know, you start to get into the camaraderie of the major and that stuff. Um, like chemistry you know the first chemistry class isn't the best but the second and third and eighth they get way funner no but when does ochem come i think that's like fourth oh (laughs) i always found ochem very difficult (laughs) that's when they would have lost me you need ochem and then you do biochem and the biochem is so cool but you need ochem first okay anyways 
<laughs> back to biochem, actually. Yeah. Back to biochem. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when you're when you're a new like computer science major, what do you first learn to code in? Like is Python what you're working in now? What? Mm, yeah, Python is now. There's not a lot of standardization. I would say. I think. Okay. I think Oregon State starts out with the language C++, mm. um, as far as I know. Um, but I started out with Java back in the day. Oh, yeah. nice. So so you're starting to get into, you know, you uh, computer science, you've declared it your major at this point, and then a friend of yours just recommends you mm-hmm. for a research internship. Were you, like, looking to get research experience, or was it just... No, I don't... Um, I think I thought it would be cool in the abstract, but uh, I really was just sort of recommended and was kind of like, sure, I'll, I'll try it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up working at a lab called the Bioinformatics Toolsmith Lab uh, yeah, at, um, at Tulsa um, and did, did research um, in, in bioinformatics. So that, that was kind of what set me along this path. Wait, but was that computer science related at all? Yeah. yeah so okay. it was, I think everybody else in my lab was computer science. It was a computer, computer mm. science professor. Maybe um, that was a silly question. Maybe that's what the nature of bioinformatics is. Uh, no, not silly at all, but okay. there's, cause it's, it is very much a spectrum of there, there are people who come at it from knowing more or having a background more in, in bio versus uh, computer science. But all of my experience has been with people who are more computational and then learn the biology. Mm-hmm. And then that experience is, is kind of what made you think that like, Oh, I kind of like research. Yeah. And what about grad school? Definitely. I, so I was able to do research for about two years. I uh, got a nice publication out of it. Um, and yeah, somewhere along there decided this is actually pretty interesting and maybe I should apply to grad school for, for computer science at least. Um, I, I think I wasn't right away sold on, on staying in bioinformatics specifically, but I, I knew I wanted to do uh, computer science. How did you end up finding Oregon State? I can't remember what put it on my radar initially, but I remember deciding I wanted to apply. Well, I knew I wanted to kind of get back out towards the West coast. Um, grew up in Colorado, um, you know, state that's kind of similar to Oregon in some ways. Um, I knew I wanted to just be a little bit back out here. And, um, I saw that Oregon state was a well-ranked department and like, you know, was producing some good research. Um, so, decided to apply. And your now advisor said something kind of, I don't know if it's funny, but related to language. Cause I think, um, you mentioned to us in the pre-interview that mm-hmm. like towards the end of your undergrad, it's when you were kind of becoming interested in, in artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and kind of wanting to head into that direction, language processing, not really knowing. And then your advisor asked you this question. Yeah. So yeah, towards the end of, of undergrad, I, you know, had some artificial intelligence courses, course projects and stuff. And I was like, Hey, this, um, this, uh, natural language processing is what it's called, you know, using AI to, you know, write text or understand texts. Um, so I thought that was very interesting at the time. And so as I was applying to grad schools, I was almost more pitching myself as, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to switch towards doing language related things. So my advisor, professor Hendricks here, um, well, we had a phone call shortly after I was admitted and he pitched me on his lab and kind of staying in bioinformatics as 
kind of what he said was biology and biological sequences kind of are a language mm. in and of themselves. Yeah. So why not come study the language of biology? <laughs> the language of biology. Yeah. yeah. When we did our pre-interview, I had no idea that natural language processing is resulting in, in like AI, I guess, writing books. I yep. had no idea yeah, about yeah. that. I don't know if there's been any, you know, good ones, books that have been published in <laughs> New York Times, New York bestsellers. Times bestsellers, but it's been in it. The field is changing so fast. Even just this week, um, there have been some huge releases from some of the big AI labs, um, stuff that was wasn't possible a couple months ago. And actually, I, I do want to get to the fact that your field in particular, I mean, many fields are, you know, quickly changing, but I think machine learning, artificial intelligence, deep learning, that is very quickly expanding. But I want to, uh, I'm thinking back to my undergraduate uh, um, university where one entire floor was completely dedicated to, quote unquote, the computer. And like oh, wow. you fed it index cards, like literal punch, punch huh. index cards for it to run a model, and this is like very rudimentary 1980s model, and it would take all night, and then the next day you would have an answer. I remember like professors, you know, tell me about this, and, and now that entire bottom floor is like, you know, many classrooms and labs that eat, that never see the outside, you know, window. But <laughs> the amount of, the rate of change for machine learning and for your field in particular is wicked fast. And Definitely. One, one thing that I do want to plug is tell us about GPT-3. What is it and why is it crazy? <laughs> <laughs> so GPT-3 is, it's actually now about two years old. Um, Which is old. It's old. No, not, I'm not even kidding. There's a, there's a new kid on the block kind of. Um, uh, it's called P-A-L-M. It's a... Um, pathways language model from from google that was released this week um and it it was it's was that kind the of big a, stuff you were alluding to yes that was, okay yeah, yeah. okay i was like that's so um, ominous <laughs> <laughs> and it is kind of a a decent step above gpt3 actually so but i, I can go back to gpt3 um because that was one of the first ones that i think really escapes to you know everybody's aware of it just outside of the field of ai but basically gpt3 is what's called a language model and uh, the basics of it are it's a deep learning system that was trained on huge, um, huge amounts of text taken from the, from the Internet, essentially the entire Internet. Um, and it's, it's trained, you, the, the basics of how it's trained are you take sentences and you blank out random words in there. And then from context, you, you teach the model how to put back in those words that were blanked out. And this task, it turns out, actually encapsulates a lot of the world knowledge and uh, ability to, you know, reproduce the patterns of, of real language. And so it's capable of doing things like generating stories, which is what maybe you have seen. Um, so yeah, it, it's a whole new world of these cool text models. And these aren't like Siri stories, you know, like where you ask Siri a question about like your grandma and it like gives you a recipe on chocolate chip cookies. N no, 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 no. This is like you you ask GP GPT three questions and it gives you back a really good response that mm -hmm. um, many people can't even tell that they're talking to a computer, mm -hmm. which yeah, is yeah. extra scary. 
<laughs> yeah, you can give it a story about unicorns um, and name name it, and then it'll it'll go off from there, and it'll it'll tell a whole story about unicorns and use the name that you gave it, and it's it's got some impressive stuff. Wow, is this something that like a regular human like myself can do online? <laughs> no, so oh, okay. <laughs> well, I think you can actually with the older version of it, but yeah, there. So I don't want to overclaim about the capabilities of these things um, because there is some controversy about them in the fact that they're trained on more or less the whole internet. Uh, oh. So the first iterations of GPT-3, when people started asking it questions, they just get back very vulgar. And uh, Yeah, well, it's, as far as, it's still an issue today, I think. Um, so, but what I was going to say is they, this last one is not is not publicly available. GPT three, I think gotcha. it's, you can you can get it through paid API access type things. Gotcha. Um, and so yeah, it's it's kind of part of a a larger debate about accessibility of these mm. things. And um, yeah, out of curiosity, does your research program have you do a whole lot of um, computer science and, and ethics? As like you know, thinking of you know computational biology or uh, computer science and biology melding together. Mm -hmm. Is there uh, a, a similar flavor on the ethics of all the things that we're doing with machine learning because of how many different applications it has? Yeah. There, so there's a new program actually within our department and um, plug for the artificial intelligence program. It, so I, it's, I think it's new this year. Um, I am just computer science and then I have like a, a concentration in artificial intelligence, mm. but now Oregon state has a new, degree in artificial intelligence and mm. so with that uh new curriculum they're bringing in um things like that with the ai ethics um so i you know i've taken i took a sort of just general research ethics when i came in mm -hmm. have not yet gotten the chance to take the new course in in AI ethics but yeah there's some interesting stuff in there i'm, I'm thinking about this because i remember hearing a interview with ezra klein he's with the new york right. times podcast where he talks He's, he's a big animal rights activist, but he ended up having someone on, on his show that discussed a lot of, you know, we're training these machines to do these things. And you had even said earlier that there's there's a reward system built in and what mm -hmm. the machine wants is, you know, another number. And uh, Ezra and his guests make a pretty cogent argument, I think, that how far away are these machines to, you know, to animals or to humans and how we treat them and, you know, what kind of ethics should we imbue the machines with that we aren't because they are you know, quote unquote machines when, you know, there's animal rights people that think of mm -hmm. this, and there's human rights people that, that think of things this way. So um, I'm, I'm particularly curious on this like ethical lens because computer science and machine learning is going to move so quickly. Is the, Can we try and lasso back something before it gets out of hand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have to say I'm a little skeptical of like the, the current models, whether they have any sort of... Um, consciousness or any, or anything sentience of it's it's going to be a while if ever because that's it's such a a nebulous concept we don't even know how to define these kind of things but yeah there's a lot of just even today there's there's so many ethical um dilemmas and you know if, if you if you teach a a ai system on biased data um, it, it can reproduce mm. the biases that um, are contained in, in, of course, we know that there's toxicity galore on the internet. Um, and so um, right. it can reproduce those patterns in ways that if we put in more work, hopefully we'll be able to get that out of there. I, I, I think of a quote that 
um, algorithms are just opinions embedded in code. Yeah. I, I forget who said that, but it was um, a, a prominent uh, researcher. Anyways, thinking, <laughs> thinking of the future and mm-hmm. the unknowns, um, you yourself have a couple years left in right. your degree, um, but you do have some ideas of what you'd want to do uh, later on. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what would be an enticing career for you? Yeah, so I think I'm still pretty open on the specifics of it, but I think now at this point I'm I'm sold on on the biotech space. Uh, you, you talk about the sort of exponential growth of AI, and that's definitely true. But then, sort of in parallel, there's there's exponential or really rapid growth in in the space of um, genomics and mm. and genetics and and these types of things and with the success of things like mRNA vaccines um, a couple years ago, the success of CRISPR gene editing, things like that. There's just a lot of exciting things going on. So it's, it's really interesting to be at the intersection of two, two fields that sort of independently are really rapidly growing and to be part of that wave, I think. Yeah, fingers yeah. crossed for the future. But for now, <laughs> you have a couple more years here at OSU. Yeah. Um, we are getting towards the end of our time. Um, and Joseph, I want to I want to thank you. My brain is is very eco ecological. That is what I do every day. And the, these kinds of concepts that we've discussed today are very hard for me to grasp. And you've really helped make them more palatable. So thank you for that. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, Before we go, uh, we have two traditions on our show. Uh, The first is that we ask um, our our guests to give a piece of advice. Um, The piece of advice can be to whomever you like, a past self, undergrads, other grads, grandmas, I don't know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Grandmas. What is How How to FaceTime your grandkids, I don't know. (laughs) So what what is your piece of advice and who's it for or just what is the advice okay um maybe it can be towards undergrads or something i was Uh, i was maybe maybe it was going to be grandmas (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i kind of on the subject of my my route from economics to computer science to biology i would say there's something to be said about just allowing yourself to be led in that way like i just didn't really think about joining this lab until a friend says, Hey, you know, try this out. Um, I think you'd be good for this and kind of just being open to, um, taking those opportunities where they come and same thing where I was kind of thinking that my, my grad school route was going to go a certain way, but then, you know, hearing the pitch from my advisor and I'm, I'm glad that I made that decision. So I think there's, yeah, just something to be said about, you don't always know right when you, get to college what you're going to end up liking but you know if if you're going to switch to something it's because you're going to like that more than what you're in so just be open to being led like that yeah that's good advice agreed the last tradition we have on the show is we ask you for a song so what song did you choose and why yeah so i picked the song waiting on the day by john mayer uh john mayer is one of my favorite artists i'm a guitar player myself so there's a lot of songs of his I could have chosen, but I chose this one because uh, kind of whenever I pick up a new guitar, like in a guitar store or something like this, this is always one of the first songs I play because it's very mm. simple. And so you can hear the specifics of how that guitar and its tone sounds. And just, uh, yeah. 
It's like a nice template. This is like your control song (laughs) that you use to test all the other guitars. Be like, oh, this kind of wood sounds this way. Oh, this fret sounds this way. So science, such a scientific approach. (laughs) (laughs) Or it could just be you really love this song. So yeah, yeah. I I try not to science my my music. I keep those two a little separate. Well, with that, thank you so much, Joseph, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And here is John Mayer with the song Waiting on the Day. Enjoy. Waiting on the day when my thoughts are my own, when this house is my home, and plans are made. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends.